Welcome to the Regulation Podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Regulation. My name is Anthony Oliver, and I'm going to lead today's discussion as we talk about regulation in public life and what makes it work. And over the next few minutes, we'll explore the way that effective regulation can improve the democratic process and underpin the public's confidence in our decision makers. My guest today is Catherine Stone, OBE, Chair of the Bar Standards Board and former Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards. In her career, Catherine has moved from one high-profile role in regulation to another, so it's certainly a great pleasure to welcome her to the Regulation Podcast today. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, let's find out a little bit more about you, Catherine. Uh, Before taking up your new role at the Bar Standards Board in August, you were Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, a post you held for five years from January 2018. Before that, you were Chief Legal Ombudsman for England and Wales from 2016, and you served as a Commissioner with the Independent Police Complaints Commission and at the Commission for Victims and Survivors in Northern Ireland. So what has attracted you to these high-profile roles in regulation? Um, I guess it's the opportunity to make a difference. Um, I started out my career in social work, child protection and mental health social work, Um, qualifying in 1985, if anybody can remember such a long time ago. Um, And my ambition then was to make a difference in the world, whether that's to one person, one family or bigger, broader groups of people. Um, And I set out to do that. And that's what I hope I've been able to do throughout my career. And the ideas of making a difference, speaking truth to power, holding people to holding powerful people to account um, is what um, kind of lights my fire, really. Uh, And it's such an important thing to do. And during that time, I've been blessed by working with groups of enormously capable, competent people. Um, And my job has really been to um, conduct the orchestra rather than try to play the instruments. So... um, any any credit, any things that have gone well have been down to the teams that I work with. And of course, all criticisms are properly directed to me. I mean, your career, as you say, started as a social worker before you moved to become chief executive of Voice UK, which is a charity supporting people with learning disabilities uh, that have experienced crime or abuse. Um, I mean, what, what what actually led you from doing these, I suppose, these roles, operational roles into being a regulator. Um, so there was some transition in the middle of that. Um, I spent uh, a lot of years regulating and inspecting um, residential and nursing homes, children's homes, secure units for children and young people, day nurseries, childminders, uh, you name it. Um, I made it my business to make sure that they were operating properly and that were people were being not only kept safe, and cared for, but were being cared about. And I think there is a difference. It's about the quality of life, or I think we call it these days, lived experience of the people who were using those services and their families. So um, you know, that during that transition period, if you like, from um, direct operational work as a, a frontline social worker, um, uh, I'm, I moved into regulating and inspecting services that were being provided to vulnerable people um, who are, at one time were, I would have been social worker or care coordinator or family advocate for. So uh, it was more of a natural progression than it might seem, I think. 
clear, clearly there's a passion for people in there as well. Um, and I've thought really, really carefully about that, Anthony, and, and it comes from uh, two places. So um, I grew up in a corner shop, living literally above the shop, um, which was um, yards from enormous factories, a pub, another shop. And across the road, there was um, what was called then a DOS house, but what we now call a hostel. Um, and people used to come in from the factories, from uh, the hostel, um, from, uh, and it was people, people, people all the time, from six in the morning when the bread was delivered to 11 o'clock at night when the shop closed. Um, and the people that came in from the hostel were invariably um, homeless men with alcohol dependency, uh, very unkempt, uh, and very scary in appearance to a small child. Um, but I saw my mum treat them respectfully, treat them equally, um, and show them kindness and care. Um, and that was something that really stuck with me. And um, when people, she used to keep a book under the counter and people used to, hadn't, hadn't got any money, she, they used to say, can you put something in the book? Um, and if it came to the end of the week when they got their money, if they hadn't quite got enough, she'd cross what was off in the book, she'd cross it out. Um, and then the most profound impact came at school um, when I went on a school trip and we went to care for um, a large group of people from a, hosp from a hospital for people with learning difficulties um, from the northeast of England who arrived at, at Skegness uh, Derbyshire Miners Holiday Camp and it was the job of us as a group of teenagers to look after these people. I mean, it just wouldn't be allowed now. It just really, really wouldn't. It was a health and safety nightmare. Um, but... What I saw was a group of extraordinarily vulnerable people, um, profoundly physically disabled with learning difficulties, being treated with a complete lack of humanity and compassion. And I vowed at that moment to make it my business to make sure that everybody was treated humanely, kindly, compassionately, equally and respectfully. Um, and the way to do that is through, uh, it seems to me now, um, through better regulation of services that can have a bigger impact on a bigger group of people. You can do it with one person as in a child protection context or in a mental health context, or you can do it with large groups of people um, as a regulator of services. So would you say it is that, that lived experience that really makes you a good regulator then? Um, I, I, I think one of the things that I try to do is think about what what is it like to receive this service? So what would it be like to live in a nursing home? What would it be like if this were a member of my family in this hospice? What would it be like if I were wanting to use these legal services or if I were... Um, a family whose loved one had died following police contact? How would I want to be communicated with? Um, and that came home to me in the most profound way when I ran the charity for people with learning difficulties who'd been victims of abuse, crime. And also um, while I was in Northern Ireland um, and 
the, the the humbling experience of being able to serve people who had been victims of the troubles, who had been bereaved or injured or were caring for someone who um, had been injured, uh, was quite an extraordinary experience. And what I learned from that is, um, in fact, there was a, a guy spoke at an event in Northern Ireland and he wanted his fellow victims of the troubles to to know that um, as as a supporter, we should always be beside someone, never above them, never beneath them, but always beside them. And I think as regulators, we need to be beside not only the public on whose behalf we are regulating, but beside the services that we are regulating. We're there as a critical friend. We're not there to put white gloves on and check the dust on top of the doors. You know, that's that's not what regulation's about. Regulation is a positive, educative, informative thing. And we use... Um, we use enforcement, legal action as an option as part of that. But we we should always try to be alongside services and help them to develop to the best standards they can um, before we consider any enforcement action. Interesting, powerful and challenging uh, stuff that you talk about there. Moving forward, of course, your most recent role, I suppose it's a slight contrast because as Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, um, uh, I mean, you were you were working with and perhaps pitted against some of the most powerful and influential people uh, when you're regulating Parliament. Um, would you describe that as being an enjoyable role? Um, I think it's fair to say I learned a lot. <laughs> I think it's fair to say I, I learned a lot about uh, the way that politics works. I learned a lot about um, how people are all in favour of being held to, of uh, politicians being held to account until it's them being held to account, at which point they really don't like it at all. Um, and I also learned a lot about myself and my own resilience and my own... Uh, determination, some might um, typify it as stubbornness, uh, to speak truth to power. Um, And it was a unique privilege to serve as Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards at a time when standards was headline news, it seemed to me and my team, uh, every day. And it continues to be headline news every day. And of course, there are many similarities between that role and the one that I do now as chair of the Boris Standards Board. Um, Both barristers and politicians are very much in the public eye and we expect them, both groups, to set a good example. And many politicians are barristers, of course. Um, At the moment, we're, we're looking at the BSB at the extent to which we should regulate the behaviour of barristers outside their professional lives, for example, their use of social media. And my goodness, what a fuss there's been over the past few days about um, uh, employees of the BBC using social media. This is the Gary Lineker. You're referring to the Gary Gary Lineker. The Gary Lineker thing. Now, you know, it's raised all sorts of broader issues about standards in public life. And um, impartiality and is it right? I I make no comment on any of this stuff, Anthony. I've been politically impartial all my professional working life and I'm not about to change that now. 
Um, but there, as with all things, there are two sides, aren't there? And I've heard lots of commentators over the weekend saying, hang on a minute, if we're talking about impartiality, what about the chairman of the BBC? What about um, the donation? What about the appointment of the chairman of the BBC following some um, financial um, discussions? How, how does that work in terms of impartiality? So, you know, listening to both sides as a regulator is a, a key skill. Exactly. As you say, there's it's quite often not black and white uh, issues that you're dealing with. What would you say would your, were your greatest successes then as uh, Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards? Uh, surviving five years. <laughs> <laughs> greatest challenges then? Surviving five years. Surviving five years. No, um, uh, for me, um, the success was, uh, and, I, and I touched on it before, working with an extraordinary team. Um, uh, and, you know, no woman is an island, as I think Joan Dunn once said. Um, and um, working with people who are knowledgeable, skilled, uh, experienced, competent, capable that the job is to to kind of let them do their thing and shout um, encouragement from the sidelines um, and then take the responsibility uh, for decisions that need to be taken. Um, so the success is building the team that created the reputation of the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards Office as being independent, impartial, thorough and fair. I set those four values on my arrival um, at the office and everything we did, every letter we wrote, every decision we made, every report we drafted was in line with those four principles. And for me, independence, impartiality, thoroughness and fairness are actually what any regulator should strive to deliver in terms of their output, whether that's in education, health, law, whatever it's in. We, we should be able to do those things. So now you're at the Bar Standards Board. How is regulating a professional body different from, say, regulating MPs? Um, I guess regulation, uh, whatever the body, um, has to be, um, there has to be some consistency in it. And um, it would be very easy uh, for any regulator to be awed by um, the experience of the the people that they're regulating, and I know people who work in healthcare regulation, and you know sometimes there's a an attempt to bamboozle with medical language and all the rest of it. But strip all that away, and it's about the standards of behaviour that we expect, um, the standards of service delivery that we expect. It's about the standards of care that we expect. So. Um, you know, standards uh, amongst barristers are very, very high. You know, this is a, a group of people who, by definition, are our brightest and our best. There is a global reputation for excellence. And when people fall below the standard that's expected, there is an expectation that we as the Bar Standards Board will intervene and we'll do something about that. Um, we also have a duty to educate and to inform and to authorise um, individual practitioners, which we which we do. What, what, what would you say, I mean, what's on your desk right now at, at, the, at the board? What are, what are the things that are really kind of ex exercising your regulation mind at the, uh, the Bar Standards Board? 
Okay, so at the moment we are uh, putting the finishing touches to our business plan. Um, not something that excites lots of people, but sadly um, I'm one of the people that gets quite excited about business plans and what it means that we can, we can do as an organisation. Um, I know that we need to do better at meeting our own timeliness targets. We've had, you'll have seen, uh, quite a lot of public criticism not only from the Bar Council, but from the Legal Services Board, which is our regulator. And we need to be able to build trust and confidence in our organisational capacity to address those concerns. So we find ourselves in a very, very odd regulation sandwich. You know, we are regulating the Bar and we are being regulated by the Legal Services Board and um, making sure that we have trust and confidence of some very exacting stakeholders um, across the bar uh, more broadly uh, and um, with the Legal Services Board is certainly something that um, it's a priority for me to do. And that trust and confidence will come from doing what we are here to do, which is regulating barristers and doing that in a timely and efficient way never sacrificing quality of intervention for timeliness, but making sure that we are expedient and appropriate in our, proportionate in our interventions. How, how do you know, Catherine, how do you know you're succeeding in a, in a, in a task like that? It's um, you know, it, because you know, the measures of success are, are quite, um, well, how, how, do you do, how do you define them? Okay, well, um, in, in terms of, um, we have some very, very straightforward KPIs set for us by um, our, our outside bodies, um, and we set our own KPIs as well. So th- those are very clear kind of measures of success. But the, the softer um, measures of success in, in terms of trust and confidence, um, I, I'm not naive to think that everybody loves a regulator. Um, you know, if as a regulator you're popular with 100% of people, you're actually doing something wrong, aren't you? Because um, you don't go into regulation to make friends. And my past five years experience have taught me that it's a good idea if you're going to get into regulation to make sure you're okay for friends before you start, because you certainly won't have many by the time you've finished. <laughs> um, um, but uh, it's um, so, you know, the measures of success are the extent to which you are delivering against your KPIs that that you've set, that your board has set, that external organisations have set for you. And if if you think that those KPIs are wrong or they're not um, sufficiently nuanced, for example, um, KPIs about timeliness in regulation, I, I think are really, really limiting because what they don't account for is complexity of case or complexity of issue and something that is more complicated, multifaceted as one complaint is going to take much longer to get through the process. Uh, and let's not, um, let's not forget that those being investigated, those being regulated, will occasionally do what they can to disrupt the process uh, or to, you know, obfuscate or, or, or delay. Um, I'm not saying that that happens all the time. Of course I'm not. But there are some people who will uh, use that as a tactic. And, you know, it's a matter of public record that um, it happened previously. Um, and we need to account for that as well. 
So, um, you know, there are lots and lots of different um, indicators, lots and lots of different factors that impact the delivery against KPIs. That's not an excuse, by the way. That's just I'm kind of setting out some reasons. And I know anybody who works in regulation will have this same conundrum about timeliness versus quality. Um, And if they don't, I don't believe them. Well, that brings me to the Institute of Regulation, because, you know, the whole idea of launching this um, uh, institute was to help uh, professionals in the regulation sector to share those ideas, share those skills across the different organisations. How do you think that the different professionals in the regulation sector can learn from each other? Do you know, um, the conference that was held uh, uh, only a, a couple of very short weeks ago was absolutely brilliant in that it brought such a disparate group of people together you know people from the offshore industry and people from healthcare and people from education people from the film industry people from the food industry all regulators and you know to to coin the phrase from the the Joe Cox foundation um you know that that we share more in common than divides us um and it was brilliant to sit with people for that I've never met before, and lots of people had never met each other, but their common theme, their common ambition was better regulation, improvement of standards, better education of people delivering services, a fabulous opportunity to bring people together. And I met some incredible people um, who were as geeky and as passionate about regulation as me, which was um, <laughs> quite a refreshing change, actually. I mean, are, are, there, are there issues that as you move through regulation, you say, oh, we've got the same problem again, we've got the same issue to deal with, uh, the same challenge that you're, you're having to fix every time you move from one role to the next? Well, as I said, the quality and timeliness um, line uh, is something that um, beleaguers all uh, regulators. And I actually think we're going to be able to make huge progress by using um, AI and by using technology. You know, there are already real kind of technological uh, developments being used um, to enable us to um, to be more expedient in the way that we go about things, um, using um, machine learning to read online complaint um, forms, absolutely incredible ways of doing things now. Um, lots and lots of other agencies and organisations do it in, in different worlds. There's no reason why we shouldn't harness that to make regulation better um, and to make us target our knowledge, skill and experience in a more focused way by using technology. Uh, And one of my colleagues here at the Bar Standards Board describes it as technology and talent. You know, we we use the technology in order that we can focus the talent in the right place. And it's a fantastic way to look at things. I don't think there's any sector of, uh, of, of, of life nowadays that's not looking at um, technology and AI to try and help them out. Um, just to close us out then today, Catherine, I mean, this podcast has been looking at regulation in public life. You know, from your experience, you know, what makes it work? How can the regulation of public life um, really improve the kind of out- outcomes that we get? Um, you, you might have guessed that uh, I'm a public servant through and through uh, and... Um, it should be all our ambition to make sure that 
um, the regulation of any public service, and I focus on public services, the regulation of any public services should keep the public at the forefront of their mind and not assume that the public are one homogenous group of people, but understand there are some very real differences and we have to be alert to and alive to those. Um, and my kind of final comment to you, Anthony, um, as I said in my presentation to the Institute of Regulators Conference, is that doing the right thing is never the easiest thing, but without exception, it is the most important okay. thing. Um, you're at the top of your game right now. Um, I mean, what advice would you give to anyone working in regulation or thinking about working in reg regulation, uh, looking to follow a career like yours to the very top? You know, what are the do's and don'ts you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a few short words? Okay, uh, don't go into regulation to make friends. And um, once you're in regulation, um, d don't let compliments go to your head and criticisms go to your heart. That is a very great note to end on, Catherine. So thanks very, very much for joining us today on the Regulation Podcast. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to meet you. You too. Thank you. Well, and of course, best of luck in your new role. I look forward to catching up with you again um, on the Regulation Podcast to see how you begin getting on. So thanks for joining us today. Um, if you haven't done so already, do check out uh, the new Institute of Regulation website. That's www.ioregulation.org, uh, where you'll find a heap of useful information about how you can get involved and, of course, about the issues and challenges facing regulation right now. Thanks for joining us and thanks again to Catherine. And on behalf of the Institute of Regulation, I look forward to seeing you again very soon.